This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy Padilla with Stories of Win, and I am in Orlando, Florida for the ACMP meeting with Dr. Millie Rincon Cortez, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the neuroscience department at the University of Pittsburgh. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me, Millie. Um, we always like to start our interviews asking the women we interview, how did they first decide to study the brain? All right. Well, so... I originally wanted to become a psychiatrist, so I went into a bio major, and then I was interested in the brain and what gives rise to behavior. So I also minored in psych, and I took psychology of childhood, adolescence, adulthood, but then uh, during my third year as an undergraduate, they offered a course called physiological psychology, which seemed like a hybrid between studying the brain and biology and how that tied into behavior. So that was actually my first introduction into the brain and neuroscience. So you actually went to college thinking that you were going to do med school because you wanted yes, to be a psychiatrist. afterwards. Yeah. So how did the switch between med school and PhD happen? Um, so in my high school, they had something called career week. And I got to spend a week at a psychiatric research facility where they treated patients. Wow, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, I was what? 17, 18 years old. So I was interested in, I've always been interested in like psychiatric disorders. How can we fix them? Why do they happen? Um, but I actually, uh, disclaimer, I didn't know that there were research careers in neuroscience Same until, for me, actually, so. <laughs> until my third year. So I was like, okay, I can, I can still be in this world and I can still work in it, but I don't have to be responsible for treating mm -hmm. patients or, mm -hmm. you know, going to And did you realize because of any specific program or you met a PhD? Like, how did you realize that in third year, in your third year? Oh, um, so in this physiological psychology class, I don't know how to describe it, but it just felt intuitive. And my professor noticed that I was doing really well in the class and she thought it was a hard class. And she said that you seem very passionate about it and it seems to be a good fit for what you're excited about. So there's PhD programs that offer behavioral neuroscience majors or psych majors. So she basically told me that this was a possibility. But about in 2008-ish, mm -hmm. I want to say, I was trying to find ways to support myself as a undergrad and make money. So I found out about the Sloan Undergraduate Research Program, and I was offered a slot in the program. And they actually forced you. <laughs> and I say forced, but it's honestly like one of the best things that has happened to me in my life. Um, part of the requirements of that program was that you had to attend the Abercamps meeting. And I went to the Abercamps meeting and I'm like, well, if I'm supposed to be here because of mm -hmm. the Sloan fellowship and the money, I might as well actually see what grad schools are out there and what their programs look like. And that's how I ended up at the NYU booth getting a waiver. And so then the Sloan Fellowship was you as an undergrad in the University of Puerto Rico. Yes. Where you were getting funding to do research in a mm -hmm. lab. So I didn't start working in neuroscience research until grad school. So I was in biology and I was doing population genetics work with wow. an anthropological 
application. We were trying to figure out where the Taino Indians in Puerto Rico that had is, migrated from. That is so cool. <laughs> and what did the data suggest? Um, I left before they. <laughs> I, I left before they completed the study. I'm sure that it must be published by now. I'm sure you could find it. The PI's name is Rafael Martinez Cruzado. In case anybody's interested in finding his work. Yeah. And then for those listeners that don't know what Abracams is, that I think that stands for Annual Biomedical. Research, research conference, conference for minority students. Yes. Right? yes. So I, I've been there too when I was an undergrad and it's a really cool meeting because essentially it's mostly all undergrads and grad students and people of color. So it's like mm -hmm. this, the meeting that's going to have the highest like concentration of people of color. And so, um, and also it's a, there's a big recruitment component to it. Yeah. yeah. So I, like I said, I was just a desperate girl trying to make a living and get some research experience. And through this Sloan, program. I was able to attend that meeting. They paid for GRE prep. Um, so it was, they help you yeah, also like, prepare for yeah, grad school then. Yeah. And, and I will say that I, I'm not like a career scientist. Like I didn't think that this is what I wanted to do. And it's not like I, I had a master plan. Mm -hmm. I, I literally was just trying to find a job that could give me research experience and pay me. And then that's how I sort of fell into neuroscience. So I've, I've been lucky, I guess. I've actually heard that story a couple of times with the people that I interview. So it's interesting how like, yeah, some undergrads need to make a living too. And yeah. there's a lot of research potential and scientist mm -hmm. potential if we sponsor these programs that yes. pay undergrads. Because mm -hmm. otherwise you're going to have all scientists that are come from very privileged backgrounds and that's yeah. just not fair. So I've been um, discreet about it, but it was a time in my life where I really, really needed that job. I still tell people that, you know, why I love science and why I love education and why I love the way that I do. It's been the way that I'm able to finance mm -hmm. and live my life um, mm -hmm. ever since I was an undergrad. So once I realized that I could do this as a profession forever, then that's that was the new goal. You had an interest in, in behavior and the brain because you were majoring in psychology mm -hmm. and biology so it felt natural to then like go towards neuroscience for grad school exactly and so you ended up at NYU so so at Abercams I ended up meeting Joel Oppenheim who was the dean of the NYU Graduate Institute for Biomedical Sciences um, and I ended up it actually ended up being the only place that offered me a slot. So it sort of felt very organic and very natural, like this is where you should go. Mm -hmm. So then I moved with no neuroscience background <laughs> per se to start a PhD program at the NYU School of Medicine. And how was that? It was rough. Um, I will say that 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 one of my biggest challenges, um, no shame here, was probably surviving my PhD um, because since I majored in bio, I had all these bio classes, but not really any neuroscience classes. And here you are being thrown into a totally different, high-performing, high-pressure environment. You're by yourself. Like I moved from Puerto Rico to New York City by myself and I wasn't trained in neuroscience. So I actually, during my first semester, I remember not doing well in a class that was called Foundations of Cellular and Molecular Biology. And it was sort of like the class that everybody hated <laughs> and everybody was just trying to pass it. And I, I really struggled and I struggled so much during my first semester that I remember getting an email from Joel Oppenheim, the dean, about 
in the middle of the semester. And he basically explained to me that if I wasn't able to pull my grades up and maintain a GPA of over a 3.5, I was going to have to leave the program. Wow. Yeah. It, but I will say that- That's he, a really tough email to get in your first semester of grad school. Well, he sent me an email me asking me to meet in his office. And then okay. once I went to his office, okay. he said that. And I just remember, I will say that I remember <laughs> feeling exactly like you said, like, wow, but- I, I do want to give him a shout out because he was so supportive and so kind about it. Like he actually said to me, he's like, I have no doubts that you'll be able to pass. Like mm -hmm. we're getting you a tutor that you don't have to pay for. Oh, that's so nice. Yes. So, so he understood. So they were supportive. Yeah, actually. they were super supportive. They understood that I was coming from a different field. I had a lot of gaps in knowledge. It was a lot to do and maintaining a, a high a GPA of over 3.5 in a competitive PhD program is hard. Mm -hmm. So I was just very happy that he was able to talk to me and provide support and provide a mentor. And I was able to raise my GPA. And of course I finished. So the story has a happy mm -hmm. ending, but there, there was definitely a moment where I'm like, oh my God, they made a mistake. I shouldn't be here. Um, yeah. <laughs> and do you think that the language was a big, like, you know, moving from Puerto Rico to New York City, do you think like uh, the classes suddenly being in another language, was that a big part of it? So it's interesting that you ask that because I've sort of had to become very flexible with language because I went to a bilingual, but mostly English high school where oh. all my classes were in English except Spanish. And then I went to college at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, where all my classes were in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to NYU and all my classes are in English again, I'm like, okay, great. Like we go back to, you okay. know, to how I started learning about science. And, and it's weird because even though my first language is Spanish, I still struggle to find the right mm -hmm. words for science terms in Spanish, although I'm sure that they exist. Yeah, I, yeah. I just don't know what they are. <laughs> that happens to me too. It's hard to talk about my project in Spanish. Yep. It's like, oh, and the, and you say the word in English. Yeah. Um, and, and how did you pick what to study in grad school? That's a good question. Um, so I will say, and it's interesting because this is not the kind of work that I'm doing right now, but I will say that it's the work that got me interested in the brain and behavior and how can we change? So I remember reading an article about something called the ACE, the Adverse Child Experiences Study. And I remember a figure of that indicated that over 70% of IV users, drug users, have a history of trauma or maltreatment. In childhood. Yes. So to me, that number was incredibly high. It suggested a definite link. So I started becoming interested in my career because I wanted to focus on how infant experiences can program later life behavioral function. And because of the ACE study, I originally, when I went to grad school, I wanted to study how does early life adversity program systems in the brain that control susceptibility to addiction related behavior. But at the time there was nobody that was doing that kind of work because there's actually not very many people doing that kind of work with that focus. So one of the best pieces of advice that I got was from somebody called Dr. Javier Castellanos at NYU. I met him at an NYU retreat. And I remember, you know, being a bright eyed, bushy tailed grad student, telling him like what I want to do and like what I want to learn. And he flat out said, he's like, well, I don't think that there's anybody doing quite that. 
But I have a collaborator and she's called Regina Sullivan. And she has this really nice model where you can reduce the amount of bedding that the mother rat has. And that creates maltreatment related behaviors and disrupts mother infant interactions. And, you know, she has a focus on affect and depression, but early life stress is a risk factor for both and Mm -hmm. depression and substance abuse are often comorbid. So you could start off your career by learning the developmental behavioral neuroscience really well and by knowing stress really well. And then once you go on to your postdoc, then you can focus on dopamine systems. Oh, wow. So he's been your like mentor since the beginning. He's one of my unofficial mentors and he's actually been one of my ACMP mentors too. Like he's been assigned to me and it's funny because it's like, all right, tell, tell me what's going on at NYU. What are you doing? And and he he was very supportive and very kind and definitely one of the reasons that I was able to survive grad school. Okay, that's really cool that he he was able to that just from talking at a retreat. Like usually yes. people don't get that kind of like amazing advice at a retreat. So I'll tell you something else. That collaboration project that he referenced when he recommended her, I ended up working on that project with him too. So we've actually published together. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And and we got to maintain um, a solid relationship during grad school. So yeah. So then in uh, what was your PhD about then? Like, So in the Sullivan lab, we use mo- rodent models of early life adversity to see, you know, like how does trauma experience within the context of attachment and the context of the caregiver um, program later life behaviors. And my first focus was social behaviors, because we know from the clinical literature that children that experience trauma or abuse um Often social dysfunction emerges before the depression-related symptoms that come later. So we were interested in, my rotation project was basically was like, can we find social behavior deficits after? In the adult animal that has received like. Early adversity. Early life stress. And then can, can, do, do, do these social behavior deficits emerge before the rest of the constellation oh, of so symptoms? Your, your animals were juveniles. Yeah. So we st- we've done the social approach test um, in adults and adolescents, post-weaning, prior to weaning. But I, I guess like the first piece of data or, that I worked on was that I had to adapt a social behavior test that I could use in like baby animal, infant animals. So I was adapting the Jackie Crawley's three-chambered task and doing that in rats that were 20 to 22 days old and were still with the mother. And we found that those rats that experience infant trauma, either by being raised with a mother with low bedding or through paired odor shock conditioning, um, exhibited reduced time spent in social chambers. And the interesting thing is that when we measured depression-related behavior in the FST. I know there's a controversy um, right now, but increased in mobility is a common outcome. So FST stands for? For a swim test. So the the most interesting thing that we found is that we found these social behavior deficits at PN20, but when we looked at immobility behavior- it still wasn't there. Yeah, it still wasn't there. And the immob- increased in mobility behavior emerges during adolescence, um, and it's actually driven by increased amygdala activity. So we basically found that these social behavior deficits can predict adolescent depression-related behavior and amygdala dysfunction. And that was sort of my in into that world. Um, and then I did some work trying to figure out what are the neural correlates associated with social dysfunction after early life adversity. I did this collaboration, resting state fMRI project, looking at changes in functional connectivity between PFC and amygdala and so other So you're doing brains. MRI in rats? Mm-hmm. So do they have to have like 
anesthetize like yeah they okay. have a so it was interesting because i had to learn a lot about designing that kind of experiment even though it, it was a team effort and mm -hmm. lots of people are way more experts at that you know than me um but yeah we had to habituate rats to the chamber because we're studying stress so we can't just put them we can't just put as them there a, as a human getting an mri is really scary so i habituation sounds like a good yeah. idea so loud mm -hmm. and the animals are anesthetized um and we actually published it in 2017 we're trying to work on getting our other manuscript out we'll see it's everybody's living in different areas of the world now so it's, it's a challenge yeah. yeah and so then essentially that everything that you just said ended up being part of your phd thesis mm -hmm. and it sounded like from the very beginning you wanted to get the dopamine you know more like drug addiction related mm -hmm. part of the research such that you could do that so is that what you ended up doing for your postdoc like what yeah, so so the reason I became super interested in the mesolimbic dopamine system is because towards the end of my PhD, there were two super influential back-to-back -back papers by Kay Tai and Depeche Chaudhary, I think that's how you pronounce his name. They showed a causal role for VTA dopamine neurons in modulating depression-related phenotypes. And that's something that we didn't know because depression used to be all about serotonin. Serotonin. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> so when I when I saw Based on, you know, my prior interests and history, when I saw that people were talking about stress and dopamine and depression, that's how I knew that that's what I wanted to move into. And one of the final projects that I did as a PhD student was looking at, as I said before, what are the brain areas associated with social dysfunction? And I actually found that there's decreased um, phosphamino reactivity in the animals that experience infant trauma in targets of the mesolimbic dopamine system. Suggesting less dopamine. Then. Yeah. So I found reduced um, so socially induced phos expression in PFC, accumbens, amygdala. So for those listeners that are not neuroscientists, what what does that mean? Oh, so the, so the mesolimbic dopamine system and the, its projections to these brain areas that I just mentioned um, alterations of dopamine activity within these different circuits are thought to drive depression-related symptoms, such as depressed mood and anhedonia, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So by seeing reduced activity in mm -hmm. targets of where this dopamine goes, that suggested to me that there's probably stress-induced changes in the dopamine system across development. Mm -hmm. So I also did want to learn different techniques, um, so like electrophysiology. <laughs> um, so that's why I chose to go to Tony Grace's lab to do a postdoc because then he had he actually had just gotten funding for a grant looking at stress and dopamine, <laughs> and I it, it was just it just sort of like lined up, and I actually used his grant summary to draft a letter to ask him and I basically cold emailed him asking him, you know, for an interview. It worked out. <laughs> but like I said, it's all been very serendipitous. Like I, it wasn't like a strategic plan. And I will say that I, I was in the position of having to look for a job about five or six months before I defended. So I also didn't have a lot of time. Um, so that's how I knew that I had to make it count. So, so, and I, and I'm happy that that's the transition mm -hmm. that I made. And I feel like I've been able to get back into the stress and dopamine because that's actually what 
I started doing as a postdoc there, but with the focus on sex differences and how stress effects might differ in females and dopamine function in females. What got you interested in sex differences? Well, I'm a woman. Um, and we also know that from the clinical literature that depression is more prevalent and more severe in females, but we don't really know why. And part of the reason we don't know why is because people weren't studying females. I know, isn't it like <laughs> infuriating? Yeah, so I basically... I saw that the NIH had this SAVB or the sex as a biological variable mandate. That came out in 2014. 2014. So it basically came out just as I was Study. sealing the yeah. deal because I defended my PhD yeah. at the end of 2014. So I was already thinking about this and it just seemed like a very like low hanging fruit idea. Like I can't believe that nobody's focusing on this. So like why not have it be me, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And when you proposed this to Tony Grace, he was, he didn't really have any experience in sex differences. Yeah. But that's he was supportive. Oh, yeah. So I, so when I first started my postdoc, I remember, you know, being scared because it's difficult to transition into another lab and learn mm -hmm. a new technique. So I was a little worried about how long it would take me to learn the technique. And can I do all these new things at the same time? And I asked him, I basically asked him to give me a project and he refused. <laughs> oh, wow. And he refused. He he actually told me, he's like, mm, I could do that, but I think you could do better. And he basically like, gave come up with your own. Yeah. Idea. So so he basically gave me a copy of his funded um, R01 on depression and dopamine. And he sent it to me and he's like, well, you have three weeks. Just look it over. And see if you can find something in there that you want to work on or if you get any ideas. And he actually had mentioned studying females because of this clinical literature suggesting mm -hmm. that they There's show enhanced yeah. susceptibility. Yeah. So it was part of the alternative outcomes and multiple aims or, you know, future studies. Mm -hmm. And I just decided, well, you know what, like, that's the bit that I'm that I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to be the first person in the Grace Lab to study <laughs> females. And how did you approach that? Like being in a lab that's not really studying females? Uh, it was it was very difficult, but I guess like I had to read a lot, a lot, a lot. I had to seek out people that were experts in the field um, and have a lot of conversations about what this might mean. I had to do a lot. So of you started networking besides yeah. reading the literature. Yeah, I started networking more and just trying to meet the people, go to the sessions, see what they were saying. And I will say that I... Even though I was funded for sex differences and have done a lot of that work, like I don't consider myself mm -hmm. a sex differences person because I just want to put out there that they're very complicated to study because mm -hmm. these sex effects can happen at a hormonal level or a chromosomal level mm -hmm. or like, so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's way more complicated than we previously knew. Um, and I'm just happy that I just got to work on a little tiny piece. Of, okay. What's of the, the tiny piece that you would say? So, so. We just assume, or at least I, you know, mm -hmm. was studying stress, that stress did the same to in the dopamine males, system right? in females and males. Like, nobody even knew in, in the gray slab, like, we didn't even know what the female rats looked like in terms of dopamine neuron the activity dopamine in the VTA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first I had to, like, pilot coordinates and make sure that I'm recording in similar areas, you know, like, in terms of the... Because the brain is sufficiently different in size in the female yeah. and the male rat. Yeah. 
uh, especially the VTA. There's actually a sexual dimorphism in size there. Which for for people that are listening that have like they're like we do what? That's where the dopamine cells are. Yeah, it's like we we like to say that's the major source of dopamine, but the but not like motor related dopamine. Like we we say that that comes from nigra. So we say that it's the dopamine that we care about, like learning and motivation. No offense to those that study like yeah, no offense. Or <laughs> Sounds like the first thing you did. You were like, okay, let's yeah. record from the dopamine cells in the female and see yeah. if, it, the, if it looks the same as yeah. in the males. And yeah. Did it look the same? Yes. So what we found is that at baseline, which means like nothing has happened to the animal, um, they haven't been stressed or tested in anything and just grabbing them off the shelf and doing the recording, we found that they have comparable numbers of active dopamine cells in the VTA and firing rate of those cells and the pattern of firing the or the levels of burst firing are also comparable. But the thing that... I thought it was very shocking was that after exposure to an acute stressor, such as for swim, um, there's increased dopamine downregulation, which means that there's reduced number of active dopamine cells in the VTA of females compared to males. Like this acute stress had no impact on the male dopamine system. Okay. So that, that would suggest that the female is more susceptible to mm-hmm. stress. To stress-induced alterations in dopamine activity, yes. And we also found that this can be reversed by ketamine administration. So um, it responds to antidepressant treatment. And more importantly, this also led me to wonder about other things that happen in the woman's life that are super stressful, such as giving birth. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds really stressful for those people that have done it. I haven't done it. Yeah, yeah, me neither. But like, I literally conceptualize it as the most stressful thing that a woman will ever have to go through in her life. And it's super interesting because male, you know, male rats don't and humans don't go through this. So seeing like, wow, this female dopamine system is super sensitive to stress-induced alterations. Like, what would happen during the postpartum period? Because we actually don't know a lot about, we don't know a lot about females in biomedical research. And we also don't know a lot about how things or the parameters that we're interested vary in females as a function of reproductive condition. Like if they're pregnant or just Yeah, if they're pregnant or not pregnant, are they virgins? Like, what are the changes that happen in the early postpartum versus the late postpartum? You know, things like that. So then you started working with uh, moms, essentially. Yeah. So then I so then I moved um, and I started looking at, okay, what are the short term effects of giving birth on the brain? How long do these effects last? And now I'm sort of working on (laughs) sort of. And just a question, like nobody was studying that in the context of like postmortem dopamine changes that you know of like in um i think Benna lunar at osu has done some mesolimbic dopamine work in that animal models very few people yeah it's very few people and nobody was looking at normative changes like what does that mean normative means there's no stress so okay. most people that yeah at baseline so most people that study postpartum depression they have an some sort of manipulation that they do that's akin you know based on a factor that precipitates postpartum depression in women. So they'll go through like a hormone simulated pregnancy or they'll deplete ovarian hormones or they'll increase court levels during the postpartum period. Whereas I was just interested in looking at what just happens naturally, you know, without adding any mm-hmm. of this. Like what is the difference um, in the brain of a virgin rat versus the brain of mm-hmm. an early postpartum rat? And the reason why this question is so important is because we also know from the clinical literature that women are not only more susceptible to depression, but there seems to be something special about the postpartum period because postpartum depression is most common in women 
during the first few weeks, months, and years postpartum. And the normative processes are important because there's also something called postpartum blues in which up to 80% of first-time moms experience mild transient anxiety and depression symptoms for the first 10 days postpartum, and then they just go away. And we don't really understand what the changes in the brain are. So this is something that has been reported since the late 60s. Like, oh, this is a common physiological phenomenon. It seems to not be a problem, except that it kind of is because experiencing postpartum blues increases the risk for postpartum depression. So experiencing postpartum blues can lead to postpartum depression. And we don't really know anything about the brain um, Mm -hmm. early after the postpartum. So that's the next gap in knowledge that I tried to address. And briefly, I found that Female rodents also exhibit increased negative affect during the first three days postpartum, and this is also associated with alterations in dopamine function. Specifically, these postpartum rats have reduced number of active dopamine cells, which we think is associated with... And behaviorally, they have the blues too. Yeah, they have increased immobility in the four swim tests. They also have this reduced social behavior, which we call and, social avoidance. And are you the first person to show that? Yeah. That's really cool, really. <laughs> yeah, but it's also been really hard because as I, I mean I don't know if you guys know or not but when you're the first person to do something it's usually hard to get it published oh yeah I've heard of that I I, I haven't uh, been the first but the first person to show something quite yet but I've heard that it's notorious that things that when you color out of the lines in science yeah then you have a really hard time with the reviewers so then did you get it published or yeah it, it, so it was just published um last month. So I'm really excited to have it out because as you know, science builds on top of itself Mm -hmm. and I've done more postpartum work, but it's sort of been waiting for this first stopgap paper to be published. Well, congrats on getting that first paper out. So now I can, now I can do more postpartum work that builds upon that work. Um, and I'm really excited about that. Okay. Well, maybe this is a good transition to start talking about your future. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not a new postdoc by no. any means. So you're definitely transitioning into independence. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what your lab is going to be about and uh, what are, what do you hope mm-hmm. to accomplish? Okay. So I... So I will say that my first neuroscience love is development. So I want to go back to development. And the reason I'll pull so hard for development is because I'm interested in psychiatric disorders. So I've had extensive training with animal models relevant to depression, addiction, drug withdrawal, schizophrenia, like early adversity, etc. A lot of these are being regarded as neurodevelopmental disorders with origins in early life. So I think that when we're looking at you know, these stress-induced changes only in the adult animal, we're missing a lot of information Mm -hmm. by A, not looking across development, and B, by not looking at females. Mm -hmm. So I would like to start an independent lab in which I study how developmental experiences, such as stressors, isolation, also the flip side, like positive experiences. Mm -hmm. Enrichment. Yeah, yeah. enrichment, social support can influence... um, behaviors associated with like mood and emotion, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously rats don't feel that, but, but you catch my drift. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I, I want to continue the postpartum line of research. So I will still study females, um, across reproductive conditions. So 
I feel like I would need like collaborators or find somebody else, but I would like to be able to measure changes in brain activity during real time as rats are giving birth. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to move into, so everything that I do is in vivo anesthetized. So I see me when I have my independent lab moving towards in vivo awake behaving mm -hmm. um, recordings focused on these developmental experiences, these during reproductive. birth. Oh wow. Yeah. That's cool. And also as I, as I said before, like I'm, a, I'm very interested in sociability. So my third line of research is actually looking at ways in which we can harness social mm -hmm. function to help circumvent these mm -hmm. pathway to pathologies that are programmed by like developmental stress exposure, et cetera. And this work comes out of something that I started in the Sullivan lab, but was picked up by Rose Perry and Maya Openduck and others in which we showed that enrichment can reverse the effects of early life stress really on cool. brain and behavior. And we also showed that rearing rats that experienced early adversity, when they get weaned, if you assign them with a normal animal, you can fix some of the behavioral deficits. So, so by socially interacting by a rat with a rat that hasn't been stressed? Right. That's really cool. Yeah. So we're interested in, in seeing like, what can we do socially? And the reason why is- Social interventions yeah. then for stress, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Because- it's free. I mean, like, yeah. like humans can decide, yeah. you know, how much they want. To we all need to socialize. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, so those <laughs> are three things that I'm excited about. Let me see if I can like summarize it and like get it right. So the first thing is development. Like there's a big component of about you mm -hmm. want to like really focus on development of like how, when you have early life stress, like mm -hmm. how does that change the development of the brain? Yeah. And I would like to focus on Behavior, behavioral traits that are associated with increased addiction susceptibility, such as reduced high harm avoidance and increased impulsivity, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but I don't see myself as just focusing on early life stress and mm -hmm. addiction or something mm -hmm. like that. Then the second thing, which you mentioned at the end, but it's very much related to that first point, is reversing those mm -hmm. with interventions mm -hmm. such as social interactions. Mm -hmm. Like how how can you reverse the the adverse effects of early life stress with interventions? The third the third line is then the developmental changes during reproductive life. Yeah, the basically like how well, how can do we call that development? Like what those changes that happen during the reproductive? So cycle? it depends. There's a bias, right? Sometimes people think development is only early life, um, but uh -huh. development, I mean, I guess you could call it like life, <laughs> life changes and yeah. like dopamine function or behavior yeah. function, because there's also a bias of, we also don't know a lot about aging. <laughs> that's so true. That's in a way that's, a it's like, we know a lot about changing. adulthood. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like, we keep changing. Yeah. Right. And giving birth actually changes a lot of the brain and bodily functions and there's too. also yeah. there's a lot of i don't know if they're facts or myths but i heard but this person had not fact checked it that pregnant the the the, the brain of a pregnant woman like there's some synaptic plasticity changes like some like is that true i don't know but um it seems like we don't know oh. about the pregnant brain so. We don't like we don't know a lot, <laughs> even in humans. That's why I was telling you it's so tricky to be working in this. It's a field. new field. Yeah, because it's basically like <laughs> we don't know. It's a surprise, but it's very exciting. You yeah, know, it's exciting. It's yeah. very exciting. Lots of questions. Mm -hmm. Lots of questions. And I think that that's actually going to be one of the hardest things to do, because whenever I talk about this research line and show some of my data, um, 
people get excited, which is great. Uh, but they're like, oh my God, there's like so many ways you could go. Like you could focus mm -hmm. on this or you could focus on this. So, so you have to kind of like help them like, no, I'm going to narrow it down to these first. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have to, I, I sort of have to be picky because I obviously like can't do everything mm -hmm. as much as I would like to. <laughs> Okay, well, that's really that's really exciting. So we've kind of covered all of your trajectory, but we haven't talked much about the challenges. I like discussing challenges because you read somebody's CV or you hear about all of their successes and then it sounds like it was so easy, but it's never that easy. So pick one challenge and tell us about it and how did you overcome it? It's complicated because I guess my challenge is being a woman of color in academia. <laughs> For like, I guess my first challenge when I went to grad school was, wow, there's nobody that looks like me. Or is from Puerto Rico. So you were really aware. You were very yeah. self-aware of that. Oh, I was very self-aware and I hate to say it, but I actually was the target of, you know, racist comments and slur, even in my PhD program from people that expected less from me, etc. So just knowing and that. And they were surprised and you were like. Yeah, more. people were surprised and like, I still get it, you know, and, and basically how you overcome it is like you have no choice but to grow stronger and find a network of people that are supportive and you basically find your tribe and you mm -hmm. basically hold on to each other like real tight. Social interventions. <laughs> yeah, girl. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So so, yeah, so I think that and I guess that, that I have worked to change that because I've been involved in different societies like in the ACNP. I was an ad hoc member of the Minority Task Force and we worked to promote inclusion of minorities mm -hmm. in the society so that means like having people of color give talks and mm -hmm. be leaders and get elected to the college and be promoted to mm -hmm. leadership positions and i'm also in the ibns diversity and ethics committee in which we're also working to increase diversity in the society and representation at all mm -hmm. levels of the society so i guess like it's been a challenge and i'm aware that it's never going to go away, right? Because mm -hmm. I can't control what prejudices other mm -hmm. people have. But I... Yeah, and everybody has biases, right? Yeah, and everybody has biases too. So it was, I guess it was just, it was hard for me to experience being treated as an other because I grew up in Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico is like an island. So you basically are like in a living in like a little bubble where you don't experience like any of these things. And everybody kind of looks like you. Yeah, everybody kind of looks like you. Everybody talks like you. And there's no... You know, like like racism, not such a big of a thing over there because we're also mixed. So mm -hmm. somebody can be Puerto Rican and be like black and somebody can be Puerto Rican and be like light skinned with um, clear eyes. Mm -hmm. And we're mm -hmm. all Puerto Rican. And, and then there's no kind of or at least I didn't feel any kind of like tears of mm -hmm. people when I was there and just going to New York City, which is like the opposite. <laughs> yeah, going to New York City, which is a super multicultural city. It was great because I loved being able to hear people talking so many different languages like on a daily basis. But it also meant that I'm exposed to people that maybe don't understand diversity as well or just have different expectations. And I guess like a perfect example of that is everybody, <laughs> when I was in grad school, everybody would be like, so where did you do undergrad? Mm -hmm. And when I told them that I did undergrad in Puerto Rico, everybody was like, wow, you're here. Oh you made God. it. I'm not okay. kidding. Yeah. And so, I know they don't mean bad, right? They don't understand how 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 that makes you feel. Yeah. 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 So so I guess. So the, they're trying to use it as a compliment in a weird yeah. way. It's like, oh, wow, look at you. But look it's like at you. so. <laughs> what's the word? There's a word for that. 
patronizing patronizing yeah, yeah that's it, a good one yeah it's yeah it was just difficult and you know what i would love to say that that hasn't happened to me <laughs> since grad school um it still happens you know sometimes but i just have to like change my frame of mind and instead mm -hmm. of being angry about it or thinking that it reflects something about me i have to have an open mind and come mm -hmm. from a place of mind of if i choose not to engage or not to have this conversation then i'm missing an opportunity to educate mm -hmm. that person and try to make things different mm -hmm. because i guess my goal is like I'm trying to work so that women of color that are coming up through the ranks in academia have to deal with less of this. Like yeah. eventually nobody yeah. should have to deal with this, you know, but if I can do my part so that somebody else has a better experience or if I can be present so that other people know, wow, you know, like she's somebody that can relate mm -hmm. to this. I can talk to her, then by all means, reach out to me and we can like vent together and come yeah. up with strategies <laughs> for survival. Well, that's really cool that you've been part of different committees uh, mm -hmm. in societies that like academic societies that are trying to at least come up with like things that they can do. Yeah. Um, so I want to give a shout out to Anissa Abby Dargam because she was the president of ACMP and she's the one that invited me and gave me this great opportunity. And Jared Young is the president of IBNS that invited me. So I think that that, that says a lot, like actually seeking out minorities and telling yeah. them, hey, we need your feedback. And, we, young, and trainees too, right? Like you yeah. don't need to be, you don't need to be faculty in order to like contribute good ideas. Like True. people younger than that probably are closer to the issues and probably have better solutions. Yeah, just so. like you said, like, Having train a trainee voice is important because I feel like a lot of senior scientists kind of forget, <laughs> about, do, yeah. you know, like that they were a trainee like long, long ago. So I think that having somebody that actually knows what trainees yeah. are going through currently right now, yeah, yeah, yeah is that, useful. Yeah, that's so true. So let's talk a little bit about your life outside of the lab. Okay, if you have <laughs> do any. you want to? I don't know. Like yes, like, I do. I <laughs> Like if, if someone was like, who is Emily Rincon Cortez outside of the lab? So it sounds like as a scientist, you are really interested in development and all of these things that can happen that can change or make you more susceptible to like addiction or like mm -hmm. mood related disorders. And you're very much an advocate of studying the female and everything that has to do with the female, mm -hmm. including of including pregnancy, which is a huge deal and huge stressor mm -hmm. in the life of women. So I would say that's that's who you are as a scientist. Like, what mm -hmm. do you do for fun? What do you do to keep you from like being stressed and stuff? So I travel a lot. So I try to like, whenever there's a conference, I try to get like an extra two or three days just so that I can explore the city and basically take advantage of this trip. So I like traveling the world and meeting other people and seeing other cultures. Because Do you know how many countries you've been to? I feel like you travel a lot from your Instagram. I, <laughs> uh, I think it's over 25. Wow, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah, so it's like I'm always looking to add new countries to my list. Um, I like to go dancing too. Um, there's some music festivals that I go to religiously every year. Um, I like writing. So I used to have a, I used to run a science blog called House of Mind. Um, it's actually my Twitter handle. Um, I haven't kept up with it as much anymore, um, but I still, I go on Twitter and what like- What did you write on your blog? Oh, so this blog, so as I said- Was my that in grad school? Yeah, my PhD was like difficult. And at the beginning I was like, oh, maybe I'm not cut out for this. I'm not gonna make it. So I created a Tumblr blog because I was practicing for a career in science writing. <laughs> But then it became like a hobby and I did that. I would say that that was actually like my free time and my stress-free time where I could just unwind and have fun. 
during grad school. I will say that as a postdoc, nobody tells you that you have like a million jobs in one. I'm sure that it's the same for faculty, but I, I definitely feel spread more thin as a as postdoc. A and I find myself that I don't want to read about science on my time <laughs> out, on my time off because I obviously have less time off. So I like eating and trying out new restaurants. <laughs> I'm a foodie. That's cool. And, and now that you go to different countries and you eat their food. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. So like the last super great meal that I had was like in Australia. So I'm a seafood fan. And we went out to a boat where they basically have like... Like a restaurant in a boat? Yeah. It's like a little boat that's like docked. And they basically sell shellfish by the pound. And <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and that was probably one of my best dining experiences. Like ever so wow yeah. oh and then the other thing i will say that i i guess I'll, i'll plug for it because i've done it once and i can't wait to go back um floating floating was yes um so oh, on water okay uh, yeah like on so there's like something called float spas and you basically have a room with a shower and a sensory deprivation tank and you go in there and you basically forget about the world does it relax you oh my god like i've been i i haven't shut up about it <laughs> when was the first time you Since did it i did it last week oh so you're you, you i just literally started. just started and it was it was like i've never been able to tap into that level of chill before wow so i'm actually going to get a membership when i get back to pittsburgh and see if that actually can become part of my self care and relaxation mm -hmm. routine because it was definitely very relaxing that sounds well it sounds a little scary for me pitch black but maybe <laughs> i'll give it a try if you say so <laughs> uh, so one final little question before we finish like you mentioned self care and stuff like I like asking the women I interview partially because I'm interested, but also like it's such a thing that nobody else looks in your life unless they're really close to you. So either tell us about your morning routine or your like winding down routine, if you have any. It's okay if you don't have so, any. So my morning routine is waking up, spending a little bit of time with my cat. And you then, have a cat. Yeah, his name is Fausto. And he's also, I, I can't believe I forgot Fausto on my free time. <laughs> <laughs> on my free time. So I spend a lot of time with my cat. Um, so I chill with him for a bit, take a shower. I don't really eat breakfast. So I just grab coffee. a cup of coffee. Yeah. And, and I head out to lab. And then my winding down routine is when I go home, I have an hour where I'm not allowed to think about work or do anything work related. So to so watch a show or Yeah, so and I and I have many days, you know, where I'm like, okay, I'm leaving work and lab and I'm, you know, today's going to be a day of just chilling or seeing my friends or going out to an event or something. So just making sure that you have a time in the day where you just allow yourself to think about other things or nothing at all and mm -hmm. be distracted is a very important part and I also think that I also like making my own dinners so I cook a lot so I've also found that so you come home and you cook yeah so I'll come home and then I'll have like an hour of just like unwinding and seeing what needs to be done or just relaxing and then I'll make like a really nice meal for myself um, and yeah and just enjoy it and it's very relaxing because it takes like an hour <laughs> to cook just for me and then I eat and then I usually just like watch some tv or a movie um, or call my friends or my family all right well thank you so much Millie. thank you so much for the interview nancy it was so much fun talking to you yeah it's always fun to talk to you too